Hello, my wonderful people. I see Sander. I see Van Sage Lives. I see England. Hogwarts Hippie, hello and welcome back to ya. Hi, Hippie. What have you been up to? Let me see. Let me scroll up. See if see if Hippie has got uh, got an update on anything. No, just <laughs> Hogwarts Hippie does say I feel like a newbie. How you been? Yeah, it's good to have you back, newbie. <laughs> Hogwarts Hippie, it is really great to have you back. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe for a long time, maybe for a little while. Either way, I really appreciate you popping in to say hi. Um, let me see. Let me see. Sapphire and Heart Hook and gems. Hello, everyone. Hold on. There's somebody else I'm missing in here. There's at least one person missing. Oh, roll it. There we go. I knew I, I was like, I, I saw a name while I was speaking and I didn't call it out. There we go. How's it going, roll it? Hey, gang. How y'all doing this week? Got three more chapters for you. I've got a, uh, I've got a, a real doozy of a triple chapter today. Um, some interesting stuff going on. I say that just about every week, but, uh, you know, as we plow on through here keep in mind this is the last part of uh this is the last episode of part two i always mess that up when i always every time i'm trying to like go through the math of where we're at in the book i always mess it up but we are in the last episode of part two here um before we launch into part three the enemy and you know we're still not in the arena yet it is interesting isn't it and I think it's part of the reason why these books are pretty good. Pretty good, these books are. Van says, this week has gone by way too fast. Didn't realize it was Thursday till my Sam alarm went off. Um, Van, go ahead and let us know what is the Sam ringtone. Now, if it's just vibrate, then, then da da. But listen, is there a Sam ringtone? I gotta know whether or not you've got one. Cause I actually know, <laughs> let's see, who was it? Big Mama. Uh, Big Mama wanted me to record, <laughs> wanted me to record uh, a little audio cue so that she could set that as her alarm. Um, so I guess, yeah, my question for you is, do you have an alarm or do you need one? Van! Van, it's time! It's time to cook! <laughs> Hogwarts says, it's been good, friends. Just living life, trying to survive the madness, taking classes, learning lots of things. Well, that is excellent to hear, Hogwarts hippie. Um, I always like to hear that people are, you know, treating their treating their own time well, um, because it's something that I'm not particularly good at. Listening to Thud again today, says Proteus Spade. Fantastique. Um, oh, yeah, as in you've listened to it before. Lovely. Please do excuse me. I've got my I've got my my hotkeys all keyed in, but I want to make sure that I'm not making any of my sniffling noises on camera. Jem says, has anyone else had issues with Twitch just constantly buffering? Can't seem to fix that, no matter what I use. Um, I do wonder if it's related to some of the things going on in your part of the world, Hogwarts Hippie. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. What have y'all been doing? I feel like we need a, I, I need a new question for y'all, because we've talked about games that we're playing, we've talked about food plenty. I want to know, I want to know what your favorite weather is and where your favorite place is to experience it. 
don't go super specific on it because we don't want to like we don't want anyone doxing themselves like hey the uh the london bridge because it's right outside my house um no let me know uh where what's your favorite weather and where do you like to experience it there's my there's my big question before we launch in for today before we get into the the literary analysis and what all mm. van says it was originally an iphone built in island song Oh, gotcha. iPhone built-in island song. But now it's the I chimed in with a part of the Panic at the Disco song after all that panic talk of your, okay, hey. Vance is five. That is an excellent one. And I accept. I chimed in with a... Who was that? <laughs> that was a little bit more, that was a bit more uh, went than, <laughs> than our boy, wasn't it? Um, let's see. Gems says, I'm hoping commercials don't hit. Yeah, indeed. Cross your fingers. Cross your fingers, Gems. I signed in with a habit you people ever heard of. I'm glad Dahlia wasn't here to witness that because, frankly, that was not my, my best work. But also, I mean, who can match that, that particular tenor? Not a lot of folks. <laughs> Sander says, uh, 25 degrees, sunny, small, warm feeling wind for a location just anywhere in nature. I gotcha. Jem says autumn. Hogwarts says, I love autumn weather in uh, the Carolinas. Cool mornings and warm days. I'm going to tell y'all, I, I love me a good storm. Uh, I like I like gray days just fine, but uh, a good storm, like good, you know, <laughs> good uh, taking down tree branches kind of storm. We don't get many of those out here, um, but if I hear thunder, I'm pretty happy, especially during the day. I, I really like thunderstorms during the day um, when it just grays out the whole place and you can see everything going on. You can see the wind rustling through everything. Um, you can see these big bands of rain, these enormous belts of rain hitting everywhere. I love it. Yeah, and then Van, then we got the the Vans of the world, says, I'm a maniac and I like it when it gets 115, 120 here in Vegas. I like enjoying it at theme parks. That is so bad. <laughs> How do I ban Van? How do I ban Van? It's clearly a dangerous individual. Proteus says there's wildfires around and due to the negative air pressure, my whole department reeks of smoke. Ooh, I was there and I've got, I've got like weirdly sensitive lungs. Um, my stomach is like, uh, a cast iron bathtub, but, uh, you can just chuck anything in there. But my lungs, like I got the, I got the allergies. And one time, uh, we were going to Glacier National Park, which was my very favorite national park trip. And, uh, yeah, we had, there was a, a forest fire there. Seeing the forest fire itself was cool. But for the three days prior to that, with my lungs, just dealing with sort of being in the smoke, also the pressure system. Uh, it just like, it felt like I had like the worst flu for days, super sore throat, just totally knocked me out. Rough, rough. Oof. Okay, folks, I'm liking it. Okay, this is good. This is good. We did it. <laughs> Proteus Spade says, Van, why are you like this? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm curious, like, so Van, we had the, the oddballs in Iowa, um, wherein they would like uh we always had the kid who would show up he it would be the middle of winter you know it could literally be you know 10 20 degrees below freezing and uh 
almost always he would show up in a hoodie, but like cargo shorts. And it would, you know, it would often be one of the athletes or whatever, but not always. And uh, yeah, just, you know, cargo shorts or even, you know, athletic shorts um, did not matter. Showing up to school in, in, you know, a hoodie, maybe a coat, but the shorts, the shorts, man, what are you doing? What is the equivalent for like the real hot places in the world? Are there folks who are showing up in like their, you know, puffer jackets when it's 105 outside? <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> Van. Don't be that guy, Van. All right, gang. Hey. Y'all ready to get into it? Feel free to continue discussing. I don't want to stop y'all, okay? I don't want to I don't want to be the end of this. But my name is Sam, and this is Sidecar Stories. And we are currently about to launch into our Thursday show. This is Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. Currently reading The Hunger Games, book two. Now I know y'all have been following me so far, and uh, frankly, this book has been awesome to read. This series thus far has been, I think one of my favorites we've ever read here because some of the discussion that we can have around this is just mm, ah, awesome. Absolutely adoring it. Um, and then uh, I've had some great feedback from folks like Hen, uh, who have just been loving how the voices have been going down. And so, uh, yeah, I've been I've been thankful for the the opportunity to try out some new stuff, uh, to to attempt some things that maybe they land, maybe they don't. But overall, it seems like they're landing okay. Seems cool with me. Um, now, chapters sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen today, which means let's talk thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. 13, 14, 15. Um, uh, Hogarth is wondering, is this the last night of book two? No, this is the last night of part two of book two. We've still got a whole third part. Um, uh, chapters 19 through 27. Uh, we will continue those uh, starting next week. Next week is going to be 19, 20, 21. But this week, 16, 17, 18. So last week, 13, 14, and 15. And uh, I'm trying to do a tiny review of the whole book uh, before we launch in. Um, Katniss is going back into the Hunger Games. Her experiences outside of the arena over the last six months or so um, had been, or actually over the, the six months after the games, had been stressful. Uh, and then she sort of came back anticipating, you know, a little bit more of this fakey-fake nonsense with PETA. Well, maybe not so fakey-fake, a little bit more complicated than that. But just a little bit while, just a little while longer. But now she's hearing about other districts who might be rebelling. Now she's hearing about uh, um, the unrest in general, this precise type of unrest that the games were intended to put down. And it's so bad that she gets a visit from President Snow himself and says, you know, you got, you have to be the one to convince everyone that your little stunt with the berries wasn't a big deal. Well, Katniss kind of tries. She's got this big victory tour at the six month mark and um, well, she isn't able to do much. As a matter of fact, these rebellions continue to sort of pop off in various districts. Sounds like a bad one in eight, but about half of them are in open rebellion. And then she realizes, what could she have done to prevent that? She considers running away, but she decides ultimately she's going to stay here and she's going to do what she can to start this rebellion. And just about at the same time as she makes that decision, 
Um, there's, of course, been this big talk of a wedding between her and PETA. That's what the districts are going to want, right? That's what's really going to sell this. Well, apparently it doesn't matter because they announced the quarter quell. Every 25 Hunger Games, so Hunger Games 25, 50, and now 75, they have some sort of big twist to them. In Hunger Games 50, the one that Haymitch won, the big twist was... You gotta send twice as many tributes this year. In Hunger Games 75, this year, all of the tributes that are chosen are going to be from the tributes who have already won previous games. Now, of course, this means Katniss either way, but also uh, Peta and Hamish are gonna be the only two guys in the drawing. Um, and ultimately, Peta has made it very clear he is going to insist that Katniss is the one who makes it home alive. Meanwhile, secretly, Katniss and Haymitch have conspired that Peta should be the one who gets home alive. We'll cover all of that, uh, I'm sure, as we progress. But chapter 13, um, Katniss is basically reacting to all of this, making her plans with Haymitch to keep uh, Peta alive. Um, in chapter 14, uh, they're dragged off to the Capitol. They don't even get to say goodbye to their loved ones. Sounds like it's a, quote, new procedure, but of course we know this is essentially just trying to treat Katniss as poorly as possible. She and Peta continue to sort of interact with one another, try to keep each other steady, and they decide to train like tributes. Um, this is mostly Peta's decision, but Katniss and Hamish go along with it because, after all, training is going to be the best way to keep Peta alive anyway. Now... They decide to watch the old videos of old victors just to see if they can get anything from the quarter quell. They decide to watch the one from the 50th Hunger Games. They see uh, Peter, excuse me, uh, Haymitch's Hunger Games, how that all goes down, how he survived. Um, and he himself had a win that sort of in that, those final moments, he kind of turned one of the tools of the games against the system and didn't actually end up delivering the killing blow himself. Um, as such, that was seen as a little bit rebellious. Then, of course, we hit chapter 15, where Katniss is here in the capital, meeting some of the other victors. Some of the standouts include Finnick O'Dare, who is just an absolute dreamboat. He's from District 4, um, in charge of fishing, but also kind of a career district. And uh, he, since his win, he was one of the other youngest winners at the time. Um, since his win, he's sort of been a heartthrob, but it sounds like he has been using that as an opportunity to deal in secrets in the capital. We meet a few of the others uh, very lightly, but it sounds like there has been, um, you know, the, the District 11. Katniss manages to ask about the families of Rue and Thresh, and it sounds like they are alive. Um, but overall, it sounds like the, the, the vibe of this is that there's a decent bit of tension between these, uh, these winners, but perhaps not as much as we would think. We're going to be interacting with them a lot more today, so I don't feel like we need to launch into too much more description of how that whole interaction has gone. And without further ado, folks, I hope you are ready for this, our next chapter of The Hunger Games.
Chapter 16 Haymitch grips my wrist as if anticipating my next move, but I am as speechless as the capital's torturers have rendered Darius. Haymitch once told me they did something to Avox's tongue so they could never talk again. In my head, I hear Darius's voice, playful and bright, ringing across the hob to tease me. Not as my fellow victors make fun of me now, but because we genuinely liked each other. If Gale could see him. I know any move I make toward Darius, any act of recognition, would only result in punishment for him. So we just stare into each other's eyes. Darius, now a mute slave. Me, now headed to death. What would we say, anyway? That we're sorry for each other's lot? That we ache for the other's pain? That we're glad we had the chance to know each other? No. Darius shouldn't be glad he knew me. If I had been there to stop Thread, he wouldn't have stepped forward to save Gale. Wouldn't be an Avox, and more specifically, wouldn't be my Avox, because President Snow has so obviously had him placed here for my benefit. I twist my wrist from Hamage's grasp and head down to my old bedroom, locking the door behind me. I sit on the side of my bed, elbows on my knees, forehead on my fists, and watch my glowing suit in the darkness. Imagining I'm in my old home in District 12, huddled beside the fire. It slowly fades back to black as the power pack dies out. When Effie eventually knocks on the door to summon me to dinner, I get up and take off my suit, fold it neatly, and set it on the table with my crown. In the bathroom, I wash the dark streaks of makeup off my face. I dress in a simple shirt and pants and go down the hall to the dining room. I'm not aware of much at dinner, except that Darius and the red-headed Avox girl are our servers. Effie, Haymitch, Cinna, Portia, and Peta are all there, talking about the opening ceremonies, I suppose. But the only time I really feel present is when I purposely knock a dish of peas to the floor and, before anyone can stop me, crouch down to clean them up. Darius is right by me when I send the dish over, and we two are briefly side by side, obscured from view as we scoop up the peas for just one moment, our hands meet. I can feel his skin, rough under the buttery sauce from the dish, in the tight, desperate clench of our fingers, all the words we will never say. Then Effie's clucking from behind me about how, That isn't your job, Katniss. And he lets go. When we go to watch the recap of the opening ceremonies, I wedge myself in between Cinna and Hamish on the couch, because I don't want to be next to Peta. This awfulness with Darius belongs to me and Gale and maybe even Haymitch, but not to Peta. He might have known Darius to nod hello, but Peta wasn't Hob the way the rest of us were. Besides, I'm still angry with him for laughing at me, along with the other victors. And the last thing I want is his sympathy and comfort. I haven't changed my mind about saving him in the arena, but I don't owe him much more than that. As I watch the procession to the city circle, I think about how it's bad enough that they dress us all up in costumes and parade us through the streets in chariots on a regular year. Kids in costumes are silly, but aging victors, it turns out, are pitiful. A few who are on the younger side, like Joanna and Finnick, or whose bodies haven't fallen into disrepair, like Cedar and Brutus, can still manage to maintain a little dignity. But the majority, who are in the clutches of drink or morphling or illness... They look grotesque in their costumes, 
depicting cows and trees and loaves of bread. Last year, we chattered away about each contestant, but tonight there's only the occasional comment. Small wonder the crowd goes wild when Peta and I appear, looking so young and strong and beautiful in our brilliant costumes. The very image of what tributes should be. As soon as it's over, I stand up and thank Sina and Portia for their amazing work and head off to bed. Effie calls a reminder for an early meeting tomorrow at breakfast to work out our training strategy, but even her voice sounds hollow. Poor Effie. She finally had a decent year in the games with Peta and me, and now it's all broken down into a mess even she can't put a positive spin on. In capital terms, I'm guessing this counts as a true tragedy. Soon after I go to bed, there's a quiet knock on my door, but I ignore it. I don't want Peta tonight, especially not with Darius around. It's almost as bad as if Gale were here. Gale, how am I supposed to let him go with Darius haunting the hallways? Tongues figure prominently in my nightmares. First I watch hopeless and frozen while gloved hands carry out the bloody dissection in Darius's mouth. Then I'm at a party where everyone wears masks and someone with a flicking wet tongue, who I suppose is Finnick, stalks me, but then he catches me and pulls off his mask and it's President Snow, and his puffy lips are dripping with bloody saliva. Finally, I'm back in the arena. My own tongue is dry as sandpaper, while I try to reach a pool of water that recedes every time I'm about to touch it. When I wake, I stumble to the bathroom and gulp water from the faucet until I can hold no more. I strip off my sweaty clothes and fall back into bed, naked, and somehow find sleep again. I delay going down to breakfast as long as possible the next morning because I really don't want to discuss our strategy training. What's to discuss? Every victor already knows what everyone else can do, or used to be able to do anyway, so Peter and I will continue to act in love and that's that. Somehow I'm just not up to talking about it, especially with Darius standing mutely by. I take a long shower, dress slowly in the outfit Cinna has left for training, and order food from the menu in my room by speaking in a mouthpiece. In a minute, sausage, eggs, potatoes, bread, juice, and hot chocolate appear. I eat my fill, trying to drag out the minutes until 10 o'clock when we have to go down to the training center. By 9.30, Haymitch is pounding on my door, obviously fed up with me, ordering me to the dining room now. Still, I brush my teeth before meandering down the hall, effectively killing another five minutes. The dining room's empty except for Peter and Haymitch, whose face is flushed with drink and anger. On his wrist, he wears a solid gold bangle with a pattern of flames. This must be his concession to Effie's matching token plan, and he twists it unhappily. It's a very handsome bangle, really, but the movement makes it seem like something confining, a shackle rather than a piece of jewelry. You're late, he snarls at me. Sorry, I slept in after the mutilated tongue nightmares kept me up half the night. I mean to sound hostile, but my voice catches at the end of the sentence. Haymitch gives me a scowl and then relents. All right, never mind. Today in training you've got two jobs. One is stay in love. Obviously, I say. And two, make some friends, says Hamish. No, I say. I don't trust any of them. Can't stand being around most of them. I'd rather operate just the two of us.
That's what he said at first, but... Peter begins. But it's not going to be enough, Hamish insists. You're going to need more allies this time around. Why? I ask. Because you're at a distinct disadvantage. Your competitors have known each other for years. So who do you think they're going to target first? Us. And nothing we're going to do is going to override any old friendship, I say. So why bother? Because you can fight. You're popular with the crowd. That could still make you desirable allies. But only if you let the others know that you're willing to work with them, says Hamish. You mean you want us in the career pack this year? I ask, unable to hide my distaste. Traditionally, the tributes from Districts 1, 2, and 4 join forces, possibly taking in a few exceptional fighters and then hunt down the weaker competitors. That's been our strategy, isn't it? To train like careers, counters Hamish. And who makes up the career pack is generally decided upon before the games begin. Peter barely got in with them last year. I think of the loathing I felt when I discovered Peter was in with the career during the last games. So we're to try to get in with Finnick and Brutus. Is that what you're saying? Not necessarily. Everyone's a victor. Make your own pack if you'd rather. Choose who you like. I would suggest Chaff and Cedar, although Phoenix not to be ignored, says Hamish. You find someone to team up with who might be of some use to you. Remember, you're not in a ring full of trembling children anymore. These people are all experienced killers, no matter what shape they appear to be in. Maybe he's right. Only who could I trust? Cedar, maybe. But do I really want to make a pact with her, only to possibly have to kill her later? No. Still, I made a pact with Rue under the same circumstances. I tell Haymitch I'll try, even though I think I'll be pretty bad at the whole thing. Effie shows up a bit early to take us down, because last year, even though we were on time, we were the last two tributes to show up. But Haymitch tells her he doesn't want her taking us down to the gym. None of the other victors will be showing up with a babysitter, and being the youngest, it's even more important to look self-reliant. So she has to satisfy herself with taking us to the elevator, fussing over our hair and pushing the buttons for us. It's such a short ride, there's no real time for conversation, but when Peter takes my hand, I don't pull it away. I may have ignored him last night in private, but in training we must appear an inseparable team. Effie needn't have worried about us being the last to arrive. Only Brutus and the woman from District 2 and Obaria are present. Inobaria looks to be about 30, and all I can remember about her is that in hand-to-hand -hand combat, she killed one tribute by ripping open his throat with her teeth. She became so famous for this act that once she was victor, she had her teeth cosmetically altered so that each one ends in a sharp point like a fang and is inlaid with gold. She has no shortage of admirers in the capital. By ten o'clock, only about half of the tributes have shown up. Atala, the woman who runs training, begins her spiel right on time, unfazed by the poor attendance. Maybe she expected it. I'm sort of relieved, because that means there are a dozen people I don't have to pretend to make friends with. Atala runs through the list of stations, which include both combat and survival skills, and releases us to train. I tell Peter I think it'd be best if we split up, covering more territory. 
When he goes off to chuck spears with Brutus and Chaff, I head over to the not-dying station. Hardly anyone ever bothers to visit that. I like the trainer, and he remembers me fondly. Maybe because I spent time with him last year. He's pleased when I show him I can still set up that trap that leaves an enemy dangling by a leg from a tree. Clearly, he took note of my snares in the arena last year, and now sees me as an advanced pupil. So I ask him to review every kind of knot that might come in handy, and a few I'll probably never have to use. I'd be content to spend the morning alone with him, but after about an hour and a half, someone puts his arms around me from behind, his fingers easily finishing the complicated knot I've been sweating over. Of course, it's Finnick, who seems to have spent his childhood doing nothing but wielding tridents and manipulating ropes into fancy knots for nets, I guess. I watch for a minute while he picks up a length of rope, makes a noose, and then pretends to hang himself for my amusement. Rolling my eyes, I head over to another vacant station where tributes can learn to build fires. I already make excellent fires, but I'm pretty dependent on matches for starting them. So the trainer has me work on flint, steel, and some charred cloth. This is much harder than it looks. Even working as intently as I can, it takes me about an hour to get a fire going. I look up with a triumphant smile, only to find I have company. The two tributes from District 3 are beside me struggling to start a decent fire with matches. I think about leaving, but I really want to try using the flint again, and if I have to report back to Haymitch that I tried to make friends, these two might be a bearable choice. Both are small in stature, with ashen skin and black hair. The woman, Wyrus, is probably around my mother's age and speaks in a quiet, intelligent voice. But right away I notice she has a habit of dropping off her words in mid-sentence, as if she's forgotten you're there. Beatty, the man, is older and somewhat fidgety. He wears glasses, but spends a lot of time looking under them. They're a little strange, but I'm pretty sure neither of them is going to try to make me uncomfortable by stripping naked. And they're from District 3. Maybe they can confirm my suspicions about an uprising there. I glance around the training center. Peta is in the center of a ribald circle of knife-throwers. Morphlings from District 6 are in the camouflage station, painting each other's faces with bright pink swirls. The male tribute from District 5 is vomiting wine on the sword-fighting floor. Finnick and the old woman from his district are using the archery station. Joanna Mason is naked again and oiling her skin down for a wrestling lesson. I decide to stay put. Wyrus and Beatty make decent company. They seem friendly enough, but don't pry. We talk about our talents. They tell me they both invent things, which makes my supposed interest in fashion seem pretty weak. Iris brings up some sort of stitching device she's working on. It senses the density of the fabric and selects the length and strength. Then she becomes absorbed in a bit of dry straw before she can go on. The strength of the thread, Beatty continues explaining. Automatically, it rules out human error. Then he talks about his recent success, creating a musical chip that's tiny enough to be concealed in a flake of glitter, but can hold hours of songs. I remember Octavia talking about this during the wedding shoot, and I see a possible chance to allude to the uprising. Oh, yeah, I, my prep team was all upset a few months ago, I think, because they weren't able to get a hold of that, I say casually. I guess a lot of the orders from District 3 were getting backed up. Beatty examines me under his glasses. Yes, 
Did you have any similar backups in co-production this year? He asks. No. Well, we lost a couple of weeks when they brought in a new head peacekeeper and his crew, but nothing major, I say. To production, I mean. Two weeks sitting around your house doing nothing just means two weeks of people being hungry. I think they understand what I'm trying to say, that we've had no uprising. Oh, that's a shame, says Wyrus in a slightly disappointed voice. I found your district very... Hmm. Hmm. She trails off, distracted by something in her head. Interesting, fills in Beatty. We both did. I feel bad, knowing that their district must have suffered much worse than ours. I feel I have to defend my people. Uh, there aren't many of us in District 12, I say. Not that you'd know it nowadays by the size of the peacekeeper force. But I guess we're interested enough. As we move over to the shelter station, Wyrus stops and gazes up at the stands where the game makers are roaming around, eating and drinking, sometimes taking notice of us. Look, she says, giving her head a slight nod in their direction. I look up and see Plutarch Heavensby in the magnificent purple robe with the fur-trimmed collar that designates him as head game maker. He's eating a turkey leg. I don't see why this merits comment, but I say... Yes, he's been promoted to head game maker this year. No, no. There by the corner of the table, you can just... Beatty squints under his glasses. Just make it out. I stare in that direction, perplexed. But then I see it. A patch of space about six inches square at the corner of the table seems to be almost vibrating. It's as if the air is rippling in tiny visible waves, distorting the sharp edges of the wood and the goblet of wine someone has set there. A force field. And they've set one up between the game makers and us. I wonder what brought that on, Beatty says. Me, probably, I confess. Last year I shot an arrow at them during my private training session. Beatty and Wireless look at me curiously. I was provoked. So, do all force fields have a spot like that? Mm, it's ch a chink in them, arm. In... Says Wireless vaguely. In the armor, as it were. Finishes Beatty. Ideally it would be invisible, wouldn't it? I want to ask them more, but lunch is announced. I look for PETA, but he's hanging with a group of about ten other victors, so I decide to just eat with District 3. Maybe I can get Cedar to join us. When we make our way into the dining area, I see some of PETA's gang have other ideas. They're dragging all the smaller tables away to form one large table so that we all have to eat together. Now I don't know what to do. Even at school, I used to avoid eating at a crowded table. Frankly, I'd probably have sat alone if Madge hadn't made a habit of joining me. I guess I'd have eaten with Gale, except being two grades apart, our lunches never fell at the same time. I take a tray and start making my way around the food-laden carts that ring the room. Peter catches up with me at the stew. How's it going? Good. Fine. I like the District 3 vectors, I say. Wyrus and Beatty. <laughs> really? They're something of a joke to the others. Why does that not surprise me? I say. I think of how Peter was always surrounded at school by a crowd of friends. 
It's amazing, really, that he ever took any notice of me at all, except to think I was odd. Joanna's nicknamed them Knots and Volts. I think she's Knots and he's Volts. And so I'm stupid for thinking that they might be useful. Because of something Joanna Mason said while she was oiling up her breasts for wrestling, I retort. Actually, I think that the name's been around for years. And that didn't mean that as an insult, just sharing information. Well, Virus and BT are smart. They invent things. I can tell by sight that a force field's been put up between us and the game makers. And if we've got to have allies, I want them. I tossed the ladle back in a pot of stew, splattering us both with the gravy. What are you so angry about? Peter asks, wiping the gravy from his shirt front. Because I teased you in the elevator. I'm sorry, I thought that you'd just have a laugh about it. Forget it, I say with a shake of my head. It's a lot of things. Darius, he says. Darius, the game's Hamish making us team up with the others, I say. It could be just you and me, you know. I know, but maybe Hamish is right. Don't tell him I said so, but he usually is where the games are concerned. Well... You can have final say about our allies, but right now I'm leaning toward Chaff and Cedar, says Peter. I'm okay with Cedar. Not Chaff, I say. Not yet, anyway. Right, come on and eat with him. I promise I won't let him kiss you again, says Peter. Chaff doesn't seem as bad at lunch. He's sober, and while he talks too loud and makes bad jokes a lot, most of them are at his own expense. I can see why he'd be good for Hamish whose thoughts run so darkly. But I'm still not sure I'm ready to team up with him. I try hard to be more sociable, not just with Chaff, but with the group at large. After lunch, I do the edible insect station with the District 8 tributes, Cecilia, who's got three kids at home, and Wolf, a really old guy who's hard of hearing and doesn't seem to know what's going on since he keeps trying to stuff poisonous bugs into his mouth. I wish I could mention meeting Twill and Bonnie in the woods, but I can't figure out how. Kashmir and Gloss, the sister and brother from District 1, invite me over and we make hammocks for a while. They're polite but cool, and I spend the whole time thinking about how I killed both tributes from their district, Glimmer and Marvel, last year, and that they probably knew them, might have even been their mentors. Both my hammock and my attempt to connect with them are mediocre at best, I join Inobaria at sword training and exchange a few comments, but it's clear neither of us wants to team up. Finnick appears again when I'm picking up fishing tips, but mostly just to introduce me to Mags, the elderly woman who's also from District 4. Between her district accent and her garbled speech, possibly she's had a stroke, I can't make out more than one in four words, but I swear she can make a decent fish hook out of anything. A thorn, a wishbone, an earring... After a while, I tune out the trainer and simply try to copy whatever Mags does. Then I make a pretty good hook out of a bent nail and fasten it to some strands of hair, and she gives me a toothless smile and an unintelligible comment I think might be praise. Suddenly, I remember how she volunteered to replace the young, hysterical woman in her district. It couldn't be because she thought she had any chance of winning. She did it to save the girl just like I volunteered last year to save Prim. And I decide I want her on my team. Great. Now I have to go back and tell Hamish I want an 80-year-old and nuts and volts for my allies. He'll love that. 
So I'd give up trying to make new friends and go over to the archery range for some sanity. It's wonderful there, getting to try out all the different bows and arrows. The trainer, Tax, seeing that the standing targets offer no real challenge for me, begins to launch these silly fake birds high into the air for me to hit. At first it seems stupid, but it turns out to be kind of fun, much more like hunting a moving creature. Since I'm hitting everything he throws up, he starts increasing the number of birds he sends airborne. I forget the rest of the gym and the victors and how miserable I am and lose myself in the shooting. When I manage to take down five birds in one round, I realize it's so quiet I can hear each one hit the floor. I turn and see the majority of the victors have stopped to watch me. Their faces show everything from envy to hatred to admiration. After training, Peta and I hang out, waiting for Hamish and Effie to show up for dinner. When we are called to eat, Hamish pounces on me immediately. So, at least half the victors have instructed their mentors to request you as an ally. I know it can't be your sunny personality. They saw her shoot, says Peter with a smile. Actually, I saw her shoot for real for the first time. I'm about to put in a formal request myself. You're that good? Hamish asks me. So good that Brutus wants you? I shrug. But I don't want Brutus. I want Mags in District 3. Uh, of course you do. Hamish sighs and orders a bottle of wine. I'll tell everybody you're still making up your mind. After my shooting exhibition, I still get teased some, but I no longer feel like I'm being mocked. In fact, I feel as if I'm being somehow initiated into the victor's circle. During the next two days, I team up with almost everybody headed for the arena. Even the morphlings, who, with Peter's help, paint me into a field of yellow flowers. Even Finnick, who gives me an hour of trident lessons in exchange for an hour of archery instruction. And the more I come to know these people, the worse it is. Because on the whole, I don't hate them. And some I like. And a lot of them are so damaged that my natural instinct would be to protect them. But all of them must die if I'm to save Peter. The final day of training ends with our private sessions. We each get 15 minutes before the game makers to amaze them with our skills, but I don't know what any of us might have to show them. There's a lot of kidding about it at lunch. What we might do, sing, dance, strip, tell jokes. Mags, who I can understand a little better now, decides she's just going to take a nap. I don't know what I'm going to do. Shoot some arrows, I guess. Hamish said to surprise them if I could, but I'm fresh out of ideas. As the girl from 12, I'm scheduled to go last. The dining room gets quieter and quieter as the tributes file out to go perform. It's easier to keep up the irreverent, invincible manner we've all adopted when there are more of us. As people disappear through the door, all I can think about is that they have only a matter of days left to live. Peter and I are finally left alone. He reaches across the table to take my hands. Have you decided what to do for the game makers yet? I shake my head. I can't really use them for target practice this year with the force field up and all. Maybe I'll make some fish hooks. What about you? Not a clue. I keep wishing I could bake a cake or something. Do some more camouflage, I suggest. If the morphlings have left me anything to work with, they've been glued to that station since the training started. 
We sit in silence for a while. Then I blurt out the thing that's on both of our minds. How are we going to kill these people, Peter? I don't know. He leans his forehead down in our entwined hands. I don't want them as allies. Why did Hamish want us to get to know them? It'll be so much harder than last time. Except for Rue, maybe. I guess I never really could have killed her anyway. She was just too much like Prim. Peter looks up at me, his brow creased in thought. Our death was the most despicable, wasn't it? None of them were pretty, I say, thinking of Glimmer's and Cato's deaths. They call Peter, so I wait by myself. Fifteen minutes pass, then half an hour. It's close to forty minutes before I'm called in. When I go in, I smell the sharp odor of cleaner and notice that one of the mats has been dragged to the center of the room. The mood is very different from last year's, when the game makers were half drunk and distractedly picking at tidbits from the banquet table. They whisper among themselves, looking somewhat annoyed. What did Peter do? Something to upset them? I feel a pang of worry. That isn't good. I don't want Peter singling himself out as a target for the game maker's anger. That's part of my job, to draw fire away from Peter. But how did he upset them? Because I would love to do just that and more, to break through the smug veneer of those who try to use their brains to find amusing ways to kill us. To make them realize that while we're vulnerable to the capital's cruelties, they are as well. You got any idea how much I hate you? I think. You who've given your talents to the games? I try to catch Plutarch Heavensby's eye, but he seems to be intentionally ignoring me, as he has the entire training period. I remember how he sought me out for a dance, how pleased he was to show me the Mockingjay on his watch. His friendly manner has no place here. How could it when I'm a mere tribute and he's head game maker, so powerful, so removed, so safe? Suddenly, I know just what I'm going to do. Something that will blow anything Peter did right out of the water. I go over to the knot-tying station and get a length of rope. I start to manipulate it, but it's hard because I've never made this actual knot myself. I've only watched Finnick's clever fingers, and they moved so fast. After about ten minutes, I've come up with a respectable noose. I drag one of the target dummies into the middle of the room and, using some chinning bars, hang it so it dangles by the neck. Tying its hands behind its back would be a nice touch, too, but I think I might be running out of time. I hurry over to the camouflage station, where some of the other tributes, undoubtedly the Morphlings, have made a colossal mess. But I find a partial container of blood-red berry juice that will serve my needs. The flesh-colored fabric of the dummy's skin makes a good, absorbent canvas. I carefully finger-paint the words on its body, concealing them from view, when I step away quickly to watch the reaction that the game makers' faces have as they read the dummy. Seneca Crane.
got him. <laughs> Ice cold. Ice cold. Now, I know we are all very much looking forward to seeing precisely how they react to this, and so we're not going to have to wait too long before we launch into our next chapter here. Um, I'm going to give us a quick chatter break question. I'm going to let you all discuss that while we do our uh, do our bit of review, and then we're going to go into our next chapter here, because uh, we still have two more for this evening. Uh, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. If you want to find out more about that, go ahead and use the links command at any time. That's the links command with an S, not how I spelled it. <laughs> um, folks, how you feeling so far? How do you feel about this? Of course, Katniss has been talking about this mission, right? She has got this secret plan. She doesn't want PETA to know because PETA has very publicly announced his plan, at least publicly, like with, with their crew, with Haymitch and, and Effie and all that. He has not been silent about his intent that Katniss is the one who makes it back home again. Meanwhile, she has been trying to keep her strategy a little bit more secret. She wants to get PETA back home, and she's got Haymitch to agree. Of course, Haymitch, we know that if he's anything, he's a thinker, and so he's got some strategy in his mind. Maybe it really is to help Katniss. Maybe it's not. Um, but as of the end here, we see that Katniss really is willing to go to some lengths, and now we see some of her strengths a bit more in play. I think we can agree, right? If there's one thing that, that Katniss doesn't feel like she's great at, it is... Um, sort of, uh, you know, the, the princess wave, it's the, the, the kissing hands, it's the compliments, it's the, uh, you know, sort of like winking and, and, uh, hiding your face. None of that coquettish nonsense. This is a person who is brought up in struggle and has gotten very good at managing it. You know, if they were left alone, um, Katniss would be one of the most adept people in the entirety of District 12. I think we can probably agree on that, right? Um, at the very least, in the things that she has, uh, um, you know, chosen to become good at, and most of those are survival skills. She's good at what she does. She's not great at some of this other stuff, because she hasn't needed to be. This is all part of the contrivance of the games. Now, now we get to watch her do some things that sort of have been lingering in the back of her mind. Things that she may not have had a lot of practice in, but she's good at them nonetheless. Making waves. Um, <laughs> she, you know, when, when she was supposed to make nice with people, be, be the sweet girl from district 12, that was tough for her. Now, you know, think of how quickly when, when the task for her was, Hey, you have to make a big impression here and make it a terrible one. You need to make a big, bad impression right now. Well, she can pull that off just fine, can't she? <laughs> she's she's okay with that. She manages that pretty quickly. She knows how she's going to do it. She executes it, and it's darn near perfect. Now, here's my chatterbreak question for you right before we go into our review. Why? Uh, excuse me, uh, not why, sorry. Um, how is this going to affect her chances in the arena? Because remember who can see this? It's the game makers, but remember who can't see this? It's the other tributes. Um, we remember that uh, from last time, the the, uh, the the sort of like the talent show, which is essentially what this is, is totally secret. Nobody gets to see what happens on the inside except for the people who are actually there to witness it. Now, of course, we know somebody's got a camera and, you know, like there are probably cameras all over the place. Of course, President Snow is going to see it, but like this isn't going to get out to the public. So her hanging Seneca Crane, this dummy of Seneca Crane here, it's not going to get out to the district. So think about who who her message is meant for 
and how well she executed it and think about the effect that this has the potential to have. What are they going to do with this? There's our chatterbite question. What is going to happen next as a result of this drastic action that Katniss has taken? We thought last time was bad. Ooh, baby. Proteus Spade says, someone get Katniss some sunglasses because that was ice cold and badass as hell. Uh, Proteus Spade continues to say, also, I don't mind if I, oh, gotcha. Okay, yeah, I got you. No worries, Proteus Spade. Um, Gems says, I wonder if it would, um, if she would have done that if she knew the roller coaster she was about to embark on. Um, uh, it, that's a big question. But then again, who is Katniss? Katniss is not someone who often considers like ramifications. Um, you know what? As I say that out loud, I think she was sort of portrayed as that. You know, she was someone who I think was forced to think one step ahead because that step was changing so often. And I think it would probably be an unfair thing to say that she acts impulsively. Now, part of this might simply be that we have got her internal monologue now, so we get a lot more direct exposure to the thought processes behind her actions um, compared to a Percy Jackson or a Harry Potter. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I think as we see the her considering ramifications, she has moments of of impulsiveness. And, you know, we've, we've talked before about, like, how people sort of have these internal rules, rules that they themselves might have a name for, they might not. Um, I think most people have plenty of internal rules that even they aren't aware of. But for Katniss, what do we think is some of that internal rule stuff going on inside her right now? What, what part of her overruled the considerate um, uh, sort of ramification analysis part of her? Because, yeah, it wouldn't be fair to say that she's a super impulsive individual. I think it would be fair to say that she has been forced to be sort of reactive, constantly sort of on her toes and not necessarily thinking long-term because there are simply too many variables for that. But now that she can do a little bit of her own analysis uh, of these things, you know, able to predict somewhat more how the capital's going to react, how, the, how her viewers are going to react, how Haymitch, how PETA, et cetera, et cetera, how these people are going to react, you know, I, I think she had we, we've seen the degree to which she can actually be a planner she's not just like an impulsive like oh yeah throw these berries down whatever happens happens you know we, we see her planning and and making conscious choices even if sometimes they seem on the outside pretty impulsive gwen dog is wondering who is seneca crane and uh, Proteus Spade, Gems, yes, indeed, he was the head game maker for the 74th Hunger Games. And at the very end of the book last year, last year, uh, at the very end of, of uh, the book for book one, we sort of discovered through the rumor mill that uh, Seneca Crane was treated to a dessert of the very same berries that Katniss used um, for her, I guess we'll call it a stunt, because uh, I don't know what better term to apply to it right now. Um, but... I mean, he, he was essentially told, like, you are... this. It was an execution at the end of the day. Um, but, uh, yeah, he is sort of in trouble for allowing this thing to happen like it did in in uh, last year's games. Uh, Orly Rose says, she's in trouble for sure. Pointing out who has the blood on their hands is bold, and no one wants the responsibility pointed out to them. Yes, indeed. And that I, I think it's interesting, the, the idea of using the noose there, because... You know, she she mentions here that her intent is, well, I should say the thing that triggered this. She mentions how looking up at Plutarch Heavensby, the new head game maker, she's looking at him and thinking, 
how could how could he have this sort of friendly manner? It's got no place because I'm just a tribute. He's the head game maker. He's so powerless, so removed, so safe. And so she reminds them like, hey, even you aren't safe from this thing, right? These games aren't something that you have sort of, you exert this almighty control over, even though you might think it where you're sitting looking down at all of us. No, you you can get the news just like any of us will. Van Saves Live says, it's hard to say. It'll either go over great because of what happened to Crane or be considered the worst thing that's ever happened uh, since, uh, since it is openly violent to the Capitol in a way. Yeah, it is a direct threat of, of immediate violence. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Jem says, we basically have the same question, Sam, just from different angles. Indeed. Uh, Orly Rose says, the fact that they're putting her in a kill or be killed game for their profit and entertainment, she can't play the game that's presented because it means death and loss to her no matter how it goes. So uh, what we're seeing is an, uh, an honest part of her that won't back down from the real truth of these games. Yeah, absolutely. It is a reminder, I think, and a good one that, you know, hey, here's this, you know how the Quell is supposed to be a fresh horror uh, every 25 Hunger Games so that they never really get stale. You know, you never quite get used to them. They're supposed to hurt every time. Well, here's a reminder for you all that you aren't safe from that. Good luck, everybody. Jem says, I don't think Katniss is impulsive. I just agree with what the others here have said. She's pretty obvious about some things, especially about interpersonal uh, relationships and how they affect the long story. <laughs> Did you mean obvious or oblivious, Jem's? Because um, I, I think sometimes she can be both. <laughs> All right. Y'all keep continuing to talk about that. That was redundant. Y'all continue to talk about that. Uh, and we are going to talk a bit of review. Um, as we launch into this chapter, we find that Katniss is back in the games, back in the capital, getting trained up for the games. She has just had her big um, sort of private session with the game makers. Prior to that, she's been trying to sort of get to know some of these other tributes, Hamish really wants her to make some allies and thinks maybe she can, but so far the only people she's really picked out are the pair from District 3, um, a an aging elderly couple. I, 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 didn't rem I didn't get a read of exactly how old they were, um, but certainly on the older end. Uh, and then an absolutely elderly, like 80-year-old woman um, who, uh, <laughs> uh, who essentially Katniss says probably aren't so bad. Um, Amich predictably is not a huge fan of these as potential allies, but hey, what are you going to do? She goes into her private session and uh, she and PETA go in. Obviously, PETA goes first and then Katniss. Um, whatever happened in PETA's, it took a long time, like 40 minutes. Uh, and then when she walks in, the game makers are all annoyed. So she realizes if I'm going to protect PETA, that has to start now, yesterday, this, this last week. Um and uh, decides to do something that's really going to get their attention. Whatever PETA did, she has to make them so much more angry at her um, that they won't just decide to arbitrarily torch him in the arena. So what does she do? She finds one of the practice dummies. She pulls it over, uh, makes a noose, and hangs it from some monkey bars. And then writes the name Seneca Crane on it, alluding to the, the game maker from last year, who was killed for their participation in the games and how they didn't really, how, how, how he didn't really do the best job of keeping everything under control to remind them 
They are not safe from this. Let's see how they react. Chapter 17. The effect on the game makers is immediate and satisfying. Several let out small shrieks. Others lose their grips on their wine glasses, which shatter musically against the ground. Two seem to be considering fainting. The look of shock is unanimous. Now I have Plutarch Heavensby's attention. He stares steadily at me as the juice from the peach that he crushed in his hand runs through his fingers. Finally, he clears his throat and says, You may go now, Miss Everdeen. I give a respectful nod and turn to go, but at the last moment I can't resist tossing the container of berry juice over my shoulder. I can hear the contents splatter against the dummy while a couple more wine glasses break. As the elevator doors close before me, I see no one has moved. That surprised him, I think. It was rash and dangerous, and no doubt I will pay for it ten times over. But for the moment, I feel something close to elation, and I let myself savor it. I want to find Haymitch immediately and tell him about my session, but no one's around. I guess they're getting ready for dinner, and I decide to take a shower myself, since my hands are stained from the juice. As I stand in the water, I begin to wonder about the wisdom of my latest trick. The question that should now always be my guide is... Will this help PETA stay alive? Indirectly, this might not. What happens in training is highly secretive, so there's no point in taking action against me when no one will know what my transgression was. In fact, last year I was rewarded for my brashness. This is a different sort of crime, though. If the game makers are angry with me and decide to punish me in the arena, PETA could get caught up in the attack as well. Maybe it was too impulsive. Still, I can't say I'm sorry I did it. As we all gather for dinner, I notice Peter's hands are faintly stained with a variety of colors, even though his hair is still damp from bathing. He must have done some form of camouflage after all. Now, after the soup is served, Hamish gets right to the issue on everyone's mind. All right, so, how did your private sessions go? I exchange a look with Peter. Somehow, I'm not eager to put what I did into words. In the calm of the dining room, it seems very extreme. You go first, I say to him. Must have been something really special. I had to wait 40 minutes to go in. Peter seems to be struck with the same reluctance I'm experiencing. Well, I, I, I did the camouflage thing like you suggested, Katniss. He hesitates. Not exactly camouflage. I mean, I, I used the dice. To do what? Asks Portia. I think of how ruffled the game makers were when I entered the gym for my session. 
the smell of cleaners, the mat pulled over that spot in the center of the gym. Was it to conceal something they were unable to wash away? You painted something, didn't you? A picture. Did you see it? Peter asks. No, but they'd made a real point of covering it up. Well, that would be standard. They can't let one tribute now what another one did, says Effie, unconcerned. What did you paint, Peter? She looks a little misty. Was it a picture of Katniss? Why would he paint a picture of me, Effie? I ask, somehow annoyed. To show he's going to do everything he can to defend you. That's what everyone in the capital's expecting, anyway. Didn't he volunteer to go in with you? Effie says, as if it's the most obvious thing in the world. Actually, I painted a picture of Rue, Peter says. How she looked after Katniss had covered her in flowers. There's a long pause at the table while everyone absorbs this. And what exactly were you trying to accomplish? Hamish asks in a very measured voice. I'm not sure. I just wanted to hold them accountable, if only for a moment, says Peter. For killing a little girl? This is dreadful. Effie sounds like she's about to cry. That sort of thinking, it's forbidden, Peter, absolutely. You'll only bring down more trouble on yourself and Katniss. I've got to agree with Effie on this one, says Hamish. Portia and Cinna remain silent, but their faces are very serious. Of course, they're right, but even though it worries me, I think what he did was amazing. I guess this is a bad time to mention I hung a dummy and painted Seneca Crane's name on it, I say. This has the desired effect. After a moment of disbelief, all the disapproval in the room hits me like a ton of bricks. You hung Seneca Crane? Says Cinna. Yes, I was showing off my new knot-tying skills and he somehow ended up in a noose, I say. Oh, Katniss, says Effie in a hushed voice. How did you even know about that? Is it a secret? President Snow didn't act like it was. In fact, he seemed eager for me to know, I say. Effie leaves the table with her napkin pressed to her face. Now I have upset Effie. I should have lied and said I shot some arrows. <laughs> You'd have thought that we planned it, says Peter, giving just a hint of a smile. Didn't you? asks Portia. Her fingers press her eyelids closed as if she's warding off a very bright light. No, I say, looking up at Peter with a new sense of appreciation. Neither of us even knew what we were going to do before we went in. And Image, says Peter, we decided we don't want any other allies in the arena. Well, good, then I won't have to be responsible for you killing off my friends with your stupidity, he says. That's just what we were thinking, I tell him. We finish the meal in silence, but when we rise to go to the sitting room, Cinna puts his arm around me and gives me a squeeze. Come on, let's go get those training scores. We gather around the television and the red-eyed Effie rejoins us. The tribute's faces come up, district by district, and their scores flash under their pictures, one through twelve. Predictably high scores for Kashmir, Gloss, Brutus, Enobaria, and Finnick. Low to medium for the rest. 
Have they ever given out a zero? I ask. No, but there is a first time for everything, Senna answers. And it turns out he's right. Because when Peter and I each pull a 12, we make Hunger Games history. No one feels like celebrating, though. Why would they do that? I ask. So that the others have got no choice but to target you, says Hamish flatly. Go to bed. I can't stand and look at either one of you. Peter walks me down to my room in silence, but before he can say goodnight, I wrap my arms around him and rest my head against his chest. His hands slide up my back and his cheeks lean against my hair. I'm sorry if I made things worse, I say. <laughs> no worse than I did. Why did you do it anyway? I don't know. To show them that I'm just more than a piece in their games. He laughs a little, no doubt remembering the night before the games last year. We were on the roof, neither of us able to sleep. Peter had said something of the sort then, but I didn't understand what it meant. Now I do. Me too, he tells me. And I'm not saying I'm not going to try. To get you home, I mean. But if I'm perfectly honest... If you're perfectly honest about it, you think President Snow's probably given them direct orders to make sure that we die in the arena anyway, I say. It's crossed my mind, says Peter. It's crossed my mind, too. Repeatedly. But while I know I'll never leave that arena alive, I'm still holding on to the hope that Peter will. After all, he didn't pull out those berries. I did. No one has ever doubted that Peter's defiance was motivated by love. So maybe President Snow would prefer to keep him alive, crushed and heartbroken, as a living warning to others. But even if that happens, everyone will know that we've gone out fighting, right? Peter asks. Everyone will, I reply. And for the first time, I distance myself from the personal tragedy that has consumed me since they announced the quell. I remember the old man they shot in District 11, and Bonnie and Twill, and the rumored uprisings. Yes, everyone in the districts will be watching me to see how I handle this death sentence, this final act of President Snow's dominance. They'll be looking for some sign that their battles have not been in vain. If I can make it clear that I'm still defying the Capitol right up to the end, the Capitol will have killed me, but not my spirit. What better way to give hope to the rebels? The beauty of this idea is that my decision to keep Peter alive at the expense of my own is, itself, an act of defiance. A refusal to play the Hunger Games by the Capitol's rules. My private agenda dovetails completely with my public one. And if I really could save Peter, in terms of a revolution, this would be ideal. Because I'll be more valuable dead. They can turn me into some kind of martyr for the cause and paint my face on banners and it will do more to rally people than anything I could do if I was alive. But Peter would be more valuable alive, and tragic, because he would be able to turn his pain into words that will transform people. Peter would lose it if he knew I was thinking of all of this, so I only say, So, what should we do with our last few days? I just want to spend every possible minute of the rest of my life with you, Peter replies. 
Come on, then, I say, pulling him into my room. It feels like such a luxury, sleeping with Peta again. I didn't realize until now how starved I've been for human closeness, for the feel of him beside me in the darkness. I wish I hadn't wasted the last couple of nights shutting him out. I sink down into sleep, enveloped in his warmth, and when I open my eyes again, daylight is streaming through the windows. No nightmares, he says. No nightmares, I confirm. You? No. I'd forgotten what a real night's sleep felt like. We lie there for a while, in no rush to begin the day. Tomorrow night will be televised interviews, so today Effie and Hamish should be coaching us. More heels and sarcastic comments, I think. But then the red-headed Avox girl comes in with a note from Effie saying that, given our recent tour, both she and Hamish have agreed we can handle ourselves adequately in public. The coaching sessions have been cancelled. Hmm. Really? Says Peter, taking the note from my hand and examining it. Do you know what this means? We've got a whole day to ourselves. It's too bad we can't go somewhere, I say wistfully. Who says that we can't, he says. The roof. We order a bunch of food, grab some blankets, and head up to the roof for a picnic. A day-long picnic in the flower garden that tinkles with wind chimes. We eat, we lie in the sun, I snap off hanging vines and use my newfound knowledge and training to practice knots and weave nets. Peter sketches me. We make up a game with the force field that surrounds the roof. One of us throws an apple into it and the other person has to catch it. No one bothers us. By late afternoon, I lie with my head on Peter's lap, making a crown of flowers while he fiddles with my hair, claiming he's practicing his knots. After a while, his hands go still. What? I ask. I wish I could freeze this moment, right here, right now, and live in it forever. Usually this sort of comment, the kind that hints of his undying love for me, makes me feel guilty and awful. But I feel so warm and relaxed and beyond worrying about a future I'll never have, I just let the word slip out. Okay. I can hear the smile in his voice. Then you'll allow it. I'll allow it, I say. His fingers go back to my hair and I doze off. But he rouses me to see the sunset. It's a spectacular yellow and orange blaze behind the skyline of the capital. I didn't think that you want to miss it. Thanks, I say. Because I can count on my fingers the number of sunsets I have left. And I don't want to miss any of them. We don't go down to dinner and no one summons us. I'm glad I'm tired of making everyone around me so miserable, says Peter. Everybody crying. Or Hamish. He doesn't need to go on. We stay on the roof until bedtime and then quietly slip down to my room without encountering anyone. The next morning we're roused by my prep team. The sight of Peter and me sleeping together is too much for Octavia because she bursts into tears right away. You remember what Sinna told us? 
Venia says fiercely. Octavia nods and goes out sobbing. Peter has to return to his room for prep, and I'm left alone with Venia and Flavius. The usual chatter has been suspended. In fact, there's little talk at all other than having me raise my chin or commenting on a makeup technique. It's nearly lunch when I feel something dripping on my shoulder and turn to find Flavius, who's snipping away at my hair with silent tears running down his face. Vinya gives him a look, and he gently sets the scissors on the table and leaves. And it's just Vinya, whose skin is so pale her tattoos appear to be leaping off of it, almost rigid with determination. She does my hair and nails and makeup, fingers flying swiftly to compensate for her absent teammates. The whole time, she avoids my gaze. It's only when Cinna shows up to approve me and dismiss her that she takes my hands, looks me straight in the eye, and says, We would all like you to know what a privilege it's been to make you look your best. Then she hastens from the room. My prep team, my foolish, shallow, affectionate pets, with their obsession with feathers and parties, nearly break my heart with their goodbye. It's certain from Venia's last words that we all know I won't be returning. Does the whole world know it? I wonder. I look at Cinna. He knows, certainly. But as he promised, there's no danger of tears from him. So, what am I wearing tonight? I ask, eyeing the garment bag that holds my dress. President Snow, but in the dress order himself, says Cinna. He unzips the bag, revealing one of the wedding dresses I wore for the photo shoot. Heavy white silk with a low neckline and tight waist and sleeves that fall from my wrists to the floor. And pearls. Everywhere pearls stitched into the dress in ropes at my throat and forming the crown for the veil. Even though they announced the quarter the night of the photo shoot, people still voted for their favorite dress. And this one was the winner. The president says you are to wear it tonight. Our objections were ignored. I rub a bit of the silk between my fingers trying to figure out President Snow's reasoning. I suppose, since I was the greatest offender, my pain and loss and humiliation should be in the brightest spotlight. This, he thinks, will make that clear. It's so barbaric, the President turning my bridal gown into my shroud, that the blow strikes home, leaving me with a dull ache inside. Well, it'd be a shame to waste such a pretty dress. That's all I say. Cinna helps me carefully into the gown. As it settles on my shoulders, they can't help giving a shrug of complaint. Was it always this heavy? I ask. I remember several of the dresses being dense, but this one feels like it weighs a ton. I had to make some slight alterations because of the lighting, says Cinna. I nod, but I can't see what that has to do with anything. He decks me out in the shoes and the pearl jewelry and the veil. Touches up my makeup, has me walk. You are ravishing, he says. Now, Katniss, because this bodice is so fitted, I don't want you to be raising your arms above your head. Hold for sound. 
Hold for helicopter. Alakazoo the helicopter bippity boppity boo. Ah, good grief. How's it going, Mem Knight? <laughs> How you doing, bud? It's good to see you again. All right. Thank you very much for the resub. I appreciate you. Almost two years now, indeed. Mem Knight, thank you for jumping in. I hope you're here. I hope you're here to hang out for the chapter tonight. Hello. All right, here we go. You are ravishing, he says. No, Katniss, because this bodice is so fitted, I don't want you to be raising your arms above your head. Well, not until you twirl, anyway. Will I be twirling again? I ask, thinking of my dress last year. I'm sure Caesar will ask you. If he doesn't, you suggested yourself. Only not right away. Save it for your big finale, Sina instructs me. You give me the signal, so I know when. I say. All right. Any plans for the interview? I know Haymitch left you two to your own devices, he asks. No, this year I'm just winging it. The funny thing is, I'm not nervous at all. And I'm not. However much President Snow may hate me, this capital audience is mine. We meet up with Effie, Haymitch, Portia, and Peta at the elevator. Peta is in an elegant tuxedo and white gloves, the sort of thing that grooms wear to get married in here in the capital. Back home, everything is so much simpler. A woman usually rents a white dress that's been worn hundreds of times. The man wears something clean that's not mining clothes. They fill out some forms at the Justice Building and are assigned a house. Family and friends gather for a meal or a bit of cake, if it can be afforded. Even if it can't, there's always a traditional song we sing as the new couple crosses the threshold of their home. And we have our own little ceremony, where they make their first fire, toast a bit of bread, and share it. Maybe it's old-fashioned, but no one really feels married in District 12 until after the toasting. The other tributes have already gathered off stage and are talking softly, but when Peta and I arrive, they fall silent. I realize everyone's staring daggers at my wedding dress. Are they jealous of its beauty? The power that it might have to manipulate the crowd? Finally, Finnick says, I can't believe Sinner put you in that thing. He didn't have any choice. President Snow made him, I say, somewhat defensively. I won't let anyone criticize Sinna. Kashmir tosses her flowing blonde curls back and spits out, Well, you look ridiculous. She grabs her brother's hand and pulls him into place to lead our procession onto the stage. The other tributes begin to line up as well. I'm confused, because while they were all angry, some were giving us sympathetic pats on the shoulder. And Joanna Mason actually stops to straighten my pearl necklace. Make him pay for it, okay? She says. I nod. I don't know what she means. Not until we're all sitting down on stage and Caesar Flickerman, hair and face highlighted in lavender this year, has done his opening spiel and the tributes begin their interviews. This is the first time I realize the depth of betrayal felt among the victors and the rage that accompanies it. 
but they're all so smart, so wonderfully smart about how they play it, because it all comes back to reflect on the government and President Snow in particular. Not everyone. There are old throwbacks like Brutus and Enubaria who are just here for another games, and those too baffled or drugged or lost to join in on the attack. But there are enough victors who still have their wits and the nerve to come out fighting. Kashmir starts the ball rolling with a speech on how she just can't stop crying when she thinks of how much the people in the capital must be suffering because they will lose us. Gloss recollects the kindness shown here to him and his sister. Beatty questions the legality of the quell in his nervous, twitchy way, wondering if it's been fully examined by experts of late. Finnick recites a poem he wrote to his one true low in the capital, and about a hundred people faint because they're sure he means them. By the time Joanna Mason gets up, she's asking if something can't be done about the situation. Surely the creators of the quarter quell never anticipated such love forming between the victors and the capital. No one could be so cruel to sever such a deep bond. Cedar quietly ruminates about how, back in District 11, everyone assumes President Snow is all-powerful. So, if he's all-powerful, why doesn't he change the quell? And Chaff, who comes out right on her heels, insists the president could change the quell if he wanted to, but he must not think it matters much to anyone. By the time I'm introduced, the audience is an absolute wreck. People have been weeping and collapsing and calling for change. The sight of me in my white silk bridal gown practically causes a riot. No more me, no more star-crossed lovers living happily ever after, no more wedding. I can see even Caesar's professionalism showing some cracks as he tries to quiet them so that I can speak. But my three minutes are ticking quickly away. Finally, there's a lull and he gets out. So, Katniss, obviously this is a very emotional night for everyone. Is there anything you'd like to say? My voice trembles as I speak. Only that I'm so sorry you won't get to be at my wedding. But I'm glad that at least you get to see me in my dress. Isn't it just the most beautiful thing? I don't have to look at Sinna for a signal. I know this is the right time. I begin to twirl slowly, raising the sleeves of my heavy gown above my head. When I hear the screams of the crowd, I think it's because I must look stunning. Then I notice something is rising up around me. Smoke. From fire. Not the flickery stuff I wore last year in the chariot, but something much more real that devours my dress. I begin to panic as the smoke thickens. Charred bits of black silk swirl into the air and pearls clatter to the stage. Somehow I'm afraid to stop because my flesh doesn't seem to be burning, and I know Cinna must be behind whatever's happening. So I keep spinning and spinning. For a split second, I'm gasping, completely engulfed in the strange flames. Then all at once, the fire is gone. I slowly come to a stop, wondering if I'm naked and why Cinna has arranged to burn away my wedding dress. But I'm not naked. I'm in a dress of the exact same design as my wedding dress, only it's the color of coal and made of tiny feathers. Wonderingly, I lift my long, flowing sleeves into the air, and that's when I see myself on the television screen. Clothed in black except for the white patches on my arms. Or should I say, my wings. Because Cinna has turned me 
into a mocking jay. Everyone, everyone, Cinna out here doing work. <laughs> All right, everybody, I hope you are excited about our next chapter coming up. I'm going to take a quick break here. We've got one more chapter coming up. If y'all find yourselves coming in late, you want to find uh, playlists of the old episodes from this to uh, Harry Potter to... Um, uh, <laughs> the uh, Percy Jackson series. Y'all, go ahead, head on over to the Discord. That is where we're going to be continuing the discussion after the end of the night. You can use the links command at any time. That's the link to follow to all the good spots, and that's the link to share around if you would like to boost the show in, frankly, maybe the most important way. <laughs> Linktree slash sidecar stories. Okay, folks, thank you so much for being here with me. I am going to make my way out uh, and uh, take my little break here. But first, Jem says, Cinna, that was one gutsy move. Orly Rose says, okay, Cinna's gonna pay and I feel awful, but I love him. Um, some good thoughts here. My question is, what is it that Cinna is trying to communicate? We don't often get to deal so explicitly with the symbols in our books. and. A lot of times the symbols in books are um, more sort of, they're more visible to the audience than they are to the people on the inside of whatever we're reading. But right now, obviously, this idea of symbology is super important. This Mockingjay symbol comes up a lot. It's been printed on bread. It's been printed on, uh, it, it, it has been uh, her motif this entire time. I would like you all to give me a symbol that y'all have seen here in these books, um, something representing something else, something that's not, that represents something that it isn't in the most literal sense. Does that make sense? Something that uh, represents something else non-literally. Okay, that's what I wanna see. I wanna see those symbols that y'all have been spotting. What is a symbol of, I mean, we can say with the Mockingjay pretty clearly, it is a symbol of rebellion, of, of strength and of sort of being something that the capital did not intend, of life finding a way, don't, life finding a way um, in a way that the capital can't anticipate and cannot defend against. What are some other symbols y'all have been spotting? Symbols, there's our chatterbait question. I will see you all in five minutes and we will continue on with our next chapter for the evening. Chapter 18, the final chapter of part two. See you in five. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. How do you do? I have just received in the mail my new wireless charger. Now, Sam, how is it that you have decided, in, with your frugal nature, to get a wireless charger? Well, it was $10 to buy this, or it was $8 to buy um, the, <laughs> the replacement cable for my cable that is already so, so very busted. And uh, I go through like, pfft, I feel like I go through a charging cable every, every few months or so. 
Uh, so instead, I figured, you know what? Instead of having to plug this nonsense in, uh, let's see if one of these can do anything for me. So uh, I've heard really good reviews about this thing. Uh, I got an Anchor, A-N-K-E-R, Anchor Series 3. I'll let you know how it treats me. Folks, welcome back. We had a Chatterbreak question before we go into our next and final chapter for the evening. The Chatterbreak question was about symbols. Symbols, symbology in literature. Um, and we've talked about just how very much of a symbol that this Mockingjay has been, right? It's a symbol of defiance. Uh, it's a symbol of unity. And most especially, it is a symbol of life finding its way um, and uh, sort of something created by the capital finding a way when it wasn't meant to. There we go. Jem says, well, this one's pretty obvious. Cynicides uh, with the rebellion. You don't put the Mockingjay in public like that. Um, certainly. Also, that bracelet, says Gems, um, that Hamish is wearing. Totally something up there. P.S. I'm talking strictly from my memories of the first read-through at the moment. Tenacia says, Cinna just burned away something that was meant to oppress Katniss, the dress picked out by President Snow, and replaced it with something that symbolizes the rebellion slash freedom. Hey, Tenacia, I th I really like that you have picked this one out because, yes, of course, you know, we, we can all identify that this, that the Mockingjay is a symbol of the rebellion, but... There is literary symbology in simply the act of burning it away, right? The act of taking that dress and turning it into the Mockingjay symbol. In that action, there's you know there's a reason to connect these two things, and um, we can we can sort of talk a little bit how about this is uh, about how this is not just a literary symbol, but also intended symbol by Cinna, this character, um, because you know of course Cinna knows what he's doing; he always has. Um, he is doing, I think, exactly what you've mentioned there, Tanisha. Taking this thing that is meant to oppress Katniss and burning it away. You know, essentially saying like, hey, I'm here. And this thing, it's just, you know, it's, it's like throwing your shackles down, that kind of stuff. You know, it is, it is throwing away these things that are designed to oppress. Absolutely. We've got quite a bit of support in chat for this one from Tanisha, and it's a good one. Orly Rose says, bread. When District 11 gave Katniss the bread during the first Hunger Games because of how she treated Rue and the Mockingjay symbol baked into the bread and the people from District 8 that Katniss ran into in the woods. This one's from Sapphire Lady. And uh, yeah, I think so, Sapphire Lady. This is, um, uh, you know, this this bread being a, a symbol of connection. Yeah, between the different districts. Um, you know how each one has their own uh, sort of version of it and yet all of them were united at the table before the uh, the 74th Hunger Games, and now we find ourselves here, um, having had a lot of run-ins with bread, and each one is a symbol of connection, right? Even going back to the most significant bread moment in the whole series, right? Pita, Katniss, it's a symbol of, of connection and alliance between uh, two people who wouldn't necessarily have a reason to interact otherwise. Absolutely. Van says, I missed the Chatterbreak question, so I just assume we had some sort of thoughtful and profound insight about the characters and story that really wows all of you. <laughs> Van would like us just to assume that he's had some, some profound insight. Uh, Van, I'm, I'm totally with you. After last week, um, during the fancy chicken clothes conversation, I think we're all assuming that you had some fantastic insight for us. <laughs> I'm sorry. Van, you didn't deserve to get roasted like that. I'm sorry. 
Tanisha says, that's great. Do we have a particular type of, oh, gotcha. Uh, yeah, because uh, Orly Rose is doing some planting. Lovely. Um, folks, Orly Rose says, I see fire as well. Like making sure that the capital knows that people are at risk for burning down what snow has built. Yes, indeed. Now, folks, I adore you. I adore you. It's good to have you all here. And I hope you enjoy our next and final chapter for the evening. That's the ending music. This is the starting music. Chapter 18. I'm still smoldering a little, so it's with a tentative hand that Caesar reaches out to touch my headpiece. The white is burned away, leaving a smooth, fitted veil of black that drapes into the neckline of the dress in the back. Feathers, says Caesar. You're like a bird. A mockingjay, I think, I say, giving my wings a small flap. It's the bird on the pin that I wear as a token. A shadow of recognition flickers across Caesar's face, and I can tell he knows that the Mockingjay isn't just my token, that it's come to mean something so much more. That what will be seen as a flashy costume change in the capital is resonating in an entirely different way throughout the districts. But he makes the best of it. Well... Hats off to your stylist. I don't think anyone here can argue that that's not the most spectacular thing that we've seen in an interview. Senna, I think you'd better take a bow. Caesar gestures for Senna to rise. He does and makes a small, gracious bow. And suddenly I am so afraid for him. What has he done? Something terribly dangerous, an act of rebellion in itself, and he's done it for me. I remember his words. Don't worry. I always channel my emotions into my work. That way I don't hurt anyone but myself. And I'm afraid he's hurt himself beyond repair. The significance of my fiery transformation will not be lost on President Snow. The audience, who's been stunned into silence, breaks into wild applause. I can barely hear the buzzer that indicates that my three minutes are up. Caesar thanks me and I go back to my seat my dress now feeling lighter than air. As I pass PETA, who's headed for his interview, he doesn't meet my eyes. I take my seat carefully, but aside from the puffs of smoke here and there, I seem unharmed, so I turn my attention to him. Caesar and PETA have been a natural team since they first appeared together a year ago. Their easy give-and-take, comedic timing, and the ability to segue into heart-wrenching moments like PETA's confession of love for me have made them a huge success with the audience. They effortlessly open up with a few jokes about fires and feathers and overcooked poultry. But anyone can see that Peta is preoccupied, so Caesar directs the conversation right into the subject that's on everyone's mind. 
So, Peter. What was it like when, after all you've been through, you found out about the quarrel? Asked Caesar. I was in shock. I mean, one minute I'm seeing Katniss looking so beautiful in all these wedding gowns, and the next... I, Peter trails off. You'll realise there was never going to be a wedding, asks Caesar gently. Peter pauses for a moment, as if deciding something. He looks out at the spellbound audience, then at the floor, then finally up at Caesar. Caesar, do you think that our friends here can keep a secret? An uncomfortable laugh emanates from the audience. What can he mean? Keep a secret from who? The whole world is watching. I feel quite certain of it, says Caesar. We're already married, says Peter quietly. The crowd reacts in astonishment, and I have to bury my face in the folds of my skirt so they can't see my confusion. Where on earth is he going with this? But how can that be? asks Caesar. It's not an official marriage. We didn't go to the justice building or anything. But we have this marriage ritual in District 12. I don't know what it's like in the other districts, but there's this thing that we do, says Peter, and he briefly describes the toasting. Were your families there? asks Caesar. No, we didn't tell anyone. Not even Hamish. And Katniss's mother would never have approved, but... You see, we knew that if we were married in the capital, there wouldn't be a toasting. And neither of us really wanted to wait any longer, so one day we just did it, Peter says. And to us, we're more married than any piece of paper a big party could make us. So, this was before the quell, says Caesar. Of course it was before the quell. I'm sure we'd never have done it afterward if we knew, says Peter starting to get upset. But who could have seen it coming? No one. We went through the games. We were victors. Everyone seemed so thrilled to see us together and out of nowhere. I mean, how could we anticipate a thing like that? You couldn't, Peter. Caesar puts an arm around his shoulders. As you say, no one could have. But I have to confess, I'm glad you two at least had a few months of happiness together. Enormous applause. As if encouraged, I look up from my feathers and let the audience see my tragic smile of thanks. The residual smoke from the feathers has made my eyes teary, which adds a very nice touch. I'm not glad, says Peter. I wish we'd wait until the whole thing was done officially. This takes Caesar aback. Surely even a brief time is better than no time at all. Maybe I would think that too, Caesar, says Peter bitterly. If it weren't for the baby. There. He's done it again. Dropped a bomb that wipes out the efforts of every tribute who came before him. Well, maybe not. Maybe this year he has only lit the fuse on a bomb that the victors themselves have been building hoping someone would be able to detonate it, perhaps thinking it would need to be me in my bridal gown. Not knowing how much I rely on Sinna's talents, whereas Peter needs nothing more than his wits. 
As the bomb explodes, it sends accusations of injustice and barbarism and cruelty flying out in every direction. Even the most capital-loving, games-hungry, bloodthirsty person out there can't ignore, at least for a moment, how horrific the whole thing is. I am pregnant. The audience can't absorb the news right away. It has to strike them and sink in and be confirmed by other voices before they begin to sound like a herd of wounded animals, moaning, shrieking, calling for help. And me? I know my face is projected in a tight close-up on the screen, but I don't make any effort to hide it. Because for a moment, even I am working through what Peta has said. Isn't it the thing I dreaded most about the wedding? About the future? The loss of my children to the games? And it could be true now, couldn't it? If I hadn't spent my life building up layers of defenses until I recoil at even the suggestion of marriage or family. Caesar can't rein in the crowd again, not even when the buzzer sounds. Peter nods his goodbyes and comes back to his seat without any more conversation. I can see Caesar's lips moving, but in the place, the total chaos prevents anyone hearing a word. Only the blast of the anthem, cranked up so loud I can feel it vibrating through my bones, lets us know where we stand in the program. I automatically rise, and as I do, I sense Peter reaching out for me. Tears run down his face as I take his hand. How real are the tears? Is this an acknowledgement that he has been stalked by the same fears I have? That every victor has? Every parent in every district in Pan Am? I look back to the crowd, but the faces of Rue's mother and father swim before my eyes. Their sorrow. Their loss. I turn spontaneously to chaff and offer my hand. I feel my fingers close around the stump that now completes his arm and hold fast. And then it happens. Up and down the row, the victors begin to join hands. Some right away, like the Morflings, or Wyrus and Beatty. Others unsure, but caught up in the demands of those around them, like Brutus and Onobaria. By the time the anthem plays its final strains, all twenty-four of us stand in one unbroken line in what must be the first public show of unity among the districts since the Dark Days. You can see the realization of this as the screens begin to pop into blackness. It's too late, though. In the confusion, they didn't cut us off in time. Everyone has seen. There's disorder on the stage now, too, as the lights go out and we're left to stumble back to the training center. I've lost hold of Chaff, but Peta guides me into the elevator. Finnick and Joanna try to join us, but a harried peacekeeper blocks their way and we shoot upward alone. The moment we step off the elevator, Peta grips my shoulders. There isn't much time, so tell me. Is there anything I've got to apologize for? Nothing, I say. It was a big leap to take without my okay, but I'm just glad I didn't know. Didn't have time to second-guess him, to let any guilt over Gale detract from how I really feel about what Peter did, which is empowered. Somewhere very far off is a place called District 12, where my mother and sister and friends will have to deal with the fallout from this night. Just a brief hovercraft ride away is an arena where tomorrow... Peta and I and the other tributes will face our own form of punishment. But even if all of us meet terrible ends, something happened on that stage tonight that can't be undone. 
we victors staged our own uprising, and maybe, just maybe, the capital won't be able to contain this one. We wait for the others to return, but when the elevator opens, only Hamish appears. It's madness, are you there? Everyone's been sent home and they've cancelled the recap of the interviews on television. Peter and I hurry to the window to try and make sense of the commotion far below us on the streets. What are they saying? Peter asks. Are they asking for the president to stop the games? I don't think they know themselves what to ask. The whole situation's unprecedented. Even the idea of opposing the capital's agenda is a source of confusion for the people here, says Amidge. But there's no way that Snow would cancel the games. You know that, right? I do. Of course, he would never back down now. The only option left to him is to strike back and strike back hard. The others went home? I ask. They were all done too. I don't know how much luck they're having getting through the mob, says Hamish. Then we'll never see Effie again, says Peter. We didn't see her on the morning of the games last year. You'll give her our thanks. More than that. Really make it special. It's Effie, after all, I say. Tell her how appreciative we are and... How she was the best escort ever, and tell her. Tell her we send our love. For a while, we just stand there in silence, delaying the inevitable. And Hamish says it. I guess this is where we say our goodbyes as well. Any last words of advice? Peter asks. Stay alive! Hamish says gruffly almost an old joke with us now. He gives us each a quick embrace, and I can tell it's all he can stand. Go to bed. You need your rest. I know I should say a whole bunch of things to Hamish, but I can't think of anything he doesn't already know. And my throat is so tight I doubt I can get anything out anyway. So once again, I let Peter speak for us both. You take care, Hamish, he says. We cross the room, but in the doorway, Hamish's voice stops us. Candace, when you're in the arena, he begins. Then he pauses. He's scowling in a way that makes me sure I've already disappointed him. What? I ask defensively. You just remember who the enemy is, Hamish tells me. That's all. Now go on, get out of here. We walk down the hallway. Peter wants to stop by his room to shower off the makeup and meet me in a few minutes, but I won't let him. I'm certain that if a door shuts between us, it will lock and I'll have to spend the night without him. Besides, I have a shower in my room. I refuse to let go of his hand. Do we sleep? I don't know. We spend the whole night holding each other in some halfway land between dreams and waking. Not talking, both afraid to disturb the other and hope that we'll be able to store up a few precious minutes of rest. Cinna and Portia arrive at the dawn, and I know Peter will have to go. Tributes enter the arena alone. He gives me a light kiss. 
We'll see you soon, he says. We'll see you soon, I answer. Cinna, who will help me dress for the games, accompanies me to the roof. I'm about to mount the ladder to the hovercraft when I remember... I didn't say goodbye to Portia. I'll tell her, says Cinna. The electric current freezes me in place on the ladder until the doctor injects the tracker into my left arm. Now they will always be able to locate me in the arena. The hovercraft takes off and I look out the windows until they black out. Cinna keeps pressing me to eat and when that fails, to drink. I manage to keep sipping water, thinking of the days of dehydration that had almost killed me last year, thinking of how I will need to keep my strength up to keep Peta alive. When we reach the launch room at the arena, I shower. Cinna braids my hair down my back and helps me to dress over simple undergarments. This year's tribute outfit is a fitted blue jumpsuit made of very sheer material that zippers up in the front. A six-inch-wide padded belt covered in shiny purple plastic. A pair of nylon shoes with rubber soles. What do you think? I ask, holding the fabric out for Cinna to examine. He frowns as he rubs the thin stuff between his fingers. I don't know. It's going to offer a little protection from cold or water. Son? I ask, picturing a burning sun over a barren desert. Possibly, if it's been treated, he says. Oh, I almost forgot this. He takes my gold Mockingjay pin from his pocket and fixes it to the jumpsuit. My dress was fantastic last night, I say. Fantastic and reckless, but Cinna must know that. I thought you might like it, he says with a tight smile. We sit, as we did last year, holding hands until the voice tells me to prepare for the launch. He walks me over to the circular metal plate and zips up the neck of my jumpsuit securely. Remember, girl on fire, he says. Still betting on you. He kisses my forehead and steps back as the glass cylinder slides down around me. Thank you, I say, although he probably can't hear me. I lift my chin, holding my head high the way that he always tells me to, and wait for the plate to rise up. But it doesn't. And it still doesn't. I look at Cinna, raising my eyebrows for an explanation. He just gives his head a slight shake, as perplexed as I am. Why are they delaying this? Suddenly the door behind him bursts open and three peacekeepers spring into the room. Two pin Cinna's arms behind him and cuff him while the third hits him in the temple with such force he's knocked to his knees. But they keep hitting him with metal-studded gloves, opening gashes in his face and body. I'm screaming my head off, banging on the unyielding glass, trying to reach him. The peacekeepers ignore me completely as they drag Cinna's limp body from the room. All that's left are smears of blood on the floor. Sickened and terrified, I feel the plate begin to rise. I'm still leaning against the glass when the breeze catches my hair and I force myself to straighten up. Something seems to be wrong with my vision. The ground is too bright and shiny and keeps undulating. I squint down at my feet and see that my metal plate is surrounded by blue waves that lap up over my boots. Slowly, I raise my eyes and take in the water spreading out in all directions. I can only form one clear thought 
This place is no place for a girl on fire. That's it for our evening of reading, my friends. Not a great way to break this one up. There's not there's not a great way for me on my end to break this book up uh, and not leave that hanging there as it did. This means, as many of you may well have sussed out, that beginning next week, we are back in the arena. It took two whole parts to get here. Remember, Last part, we spent one part out, in the, out of the arena and then two parts in the arena itself. Now, we've had two-thirds of this book spent outside of the arena, and only now do we find ourselves in part three, entering the arena. And remember what Hamish said, because consider also the name of part three of this book. Part one was the spark, part two is the quell, and part three is the enemy. I must think, one must think that this has something to do with what Hamish said. Something, surely. 